So if you will, if you haven't already, open a Bible. We hope that everybody has a Bible here. And you turn to first, the first chapter of James. And our entire text is verses 2 to 12. There are sermon notes in the bulletin as well, so we can pull those out. And this is our fifth and final study in this text of Scripture. And we're going to primarily be focusing on verses 9 to 12. We've already worked through the first, um, I say, six, seven verses, verses 2 to 8. And so what we're seeing, if you look on the board up there and you look at your sermon notes, the theme of this text is how to succeed in trials. Look at verse 2. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And when you use the word trials, we are talking about that which is hard, that which is difficult. Trials are tough times. And trials are filled with bad news. And when you have bad news, how do you react? How do you react to bad news? Two people can get the same bit of news, but both of them will react very differently. Why? Well, it's a matter of how they look at it. It's a matter of a different perspective. And so, here's a joke. Here's a joke about perspective, okay? I have to introduce my jokes so that you don't miss them. (laughs) An elderly lady was well known for her faith and for her boldness and talking about it. She would stand on her front porch and shout, praise the Lord. Well, living next to her was an atheist who would get so angry at her proclamations, he would shout, there ain't no Lord. Hard times set on the elderly lady, and she prayed to God to send her some assistance. She stood on her porch, and she shouted this, praise the Lord, God, I need food. I need food. I am having a hard time. Please, Lord, send me some groceries. The next morning, the lady went out to her porch and saw a large bag of groceries and shouted, praise the Lord. And at that moment, the neighbor jumped from behind a bush and said, ha ha, I told you there was no Lord. I bought those groceries. God didn't. And then the lady started jumping up all the more and clapping her hands and saying, praise the Lord. He not only sent me the groceries, he made the devil pay for them. Oh, good. I just wanted you to record that. That was a laugh. I got a laugh. Brian, could you make sure that... Okay, good, good. All right. All right. For us as believers, God wants us to have his perspective on trials. Otherwise, verse 2, otherwise verse 2 makes no sense. Look at verse 2 again. Look at verse 2. Consider it all joy. How in the world can we consider a tragedy joy? How could we consider a tragedy joy? How can I deal with tragedy in that way? You must have God's perspective. And as I've been stating, we are talking about only believers following this text. It's not that we won't anguish over bad news. In the Bible, there are believers who get bad news and they rip their garments, they rend their garments to show the pain of the bad news. But at the same time, God does not want us to be as believers falling apart when we get bad news. We may still tear our garments, but we are not to cry out, I can't go on. We are not to cry out, I can't live anymore. We are not to cry out, my life is over. As a believer, my life is hidden with Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 3.3, there's a passage I hope you will all write down. Colossians 3.3, my life as a believer is hidden in Jesus Christ, meaning my future is secure. My future is bright no matter the bump in the road. My future is secure. A believer's life is hidden with Christ. Do you believe that? That is necessary for you to have the right perspective. Now, I tell you that you better know that these instructions, these set of instructions, are critical because, as I've been stating, you will always have trials. As I've been teaching this passage over five previous, I mean, four previous studies, you know, people in our congregation have regularly come up to me and said, this has been so helpful, this has been so helpful. But do you know that I taught this passage many, many years ago here, and people came up to me and said, this has been so helpful, this has been so helpful. And you know what? If I teach this in another 10 years, people will come up and say, this is so helpful, this is so helpful. Because guess what? You're always going through trials. In some sense, I think we could just recycle this over and over and over because the reality of it is, is life is hard. And so we've gone through these set of trials. And I said there are sets because each one of these contains commandments. I really like the fact that if you break this down, there are different sets of commandments, but the theology and there's a different background. And the very first one was recognize guys at work. Verses two and three, look. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And the idea is is that when you go through a trial, you have to recognize that you're being tested. And if there's a test, there is a testor. There's one granting the test. There's one giving the test. And we're going to go into even more theology on that, but it is important that you know that the God of the universe who could stop every one of your trials in a second If he allows it to happen, he's allowed it for a reason. And we've talked about all things work together for those who love Christ Jesus. And for those who aren't believers in Jesus Christ, I believe trials come into their life to remind them that this is not a blessed world, that they need to seek out Jesus Christ. And so, but for believers, we recognize God is at work. And so I've asked you, have you been asking yourself that in the midst of trials? What does God want me to learn from this? What does God want me to do in this situation? God is at work. Then we said commit to faithfulness, verse 4. And so there was only one command in the first verse, in verse I mean, in the first set, consider it all joy. Now we come to another one. And I said it's a command that's hard to pick up. Let endurance. Let endurance is a command. And it is in a third person. And for those of you who like English grammar, it's the idea that endurance controls you. How in the world does endurance control you? It's this mindset that you will bear up under the pressure. Trials are filled with pressure. Trials are pressure-oriented. And you are not to give in. You are not to fall apart. And so you're to commit to being faithful, not walking away from God in the midst of a trial. And then we went into this long section. We did two studies where there were three commands. Three commands, a lot of theology, with the key idea in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, pray. And then the second command was, you're not to pray without, you're not to pray with doubting, and then you are not to think in a certain way if you're not, if you're not faithfully praying. And I said, you're not to do cartwheels on that because God is telling you whatever you need to make it through the trial, not to eliminate the trial. You didn't see anywhere in here where he said, trials eliminated, pray, and trials eliminated. He said, pray for wisdom. It's the idea of how you're going to deal with this trial with skill. 
Well, now, as we come to the next section, as we come to the very next part, we're going to come to verses 9 to 12. But I got to tell you, before we do that, stop. Go to verse 1. Verse 1, we haven't studied because we didn't do a verse-by-verse study. And it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. I got to point out, and I have a lot more on the online sermon, if you can go back and look at this. We didn't do a study of the book of James, the background, but I wanted to point out that James is writing this morning to people who are from a Jewish perspective, who were believed to be Jewish believers who had been scattered out of Israel, out of Jerusalem. Many of their family members have been killed. And all of these instructions are to people who are facing the most utmost trial. Can you imagine in a day and age when you got kicked out of Israel, there was no McDonald's down the road. There was no Holiday Inn down the road. There was no society that was going to welcome you and, and just be so thankful that you were coming along. These instructions were good enough for them, and they've got to be good enough for you. So now, as we come to the fourth section, accept your situation. Fill in the blank with the idea of accept your situation. And this, I think, is often missed in churches that don't do verse-by-verse teaching. I got to tell you, you, this is often missed. You know, all the stuff about praying for wisdom, considering it joy. I'm telling you, let's look at verses 9 to 12. And it says this. In James chapter 1, 9 to 12. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because the flowering grass will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now here's a challenge. If you had to do this on your own, would you be able to identify the verb? There are two commands here. And... This is not to be missed. The command is to glory. To re- and, and I understand when I think about glory, glory and I, I'm thinking of, you know, give glory to God. Glory to God. Praise God, like in my joke, okay? But I believe this is a synonym to the concept of rejoicing. And, and the, even though it looks like it's an infinitive, it is not. They, they did it for English purposes, It is, you are to glory. You are to glory if you're a rich man. You are to glory if you are a poor man. And he puts the poor man first, and I believe we're talking about financial, and then we're talking about people who are poor, people who are rich. But basically what he's trying to do is show people at both ends of the spectrum. There's a lot of theology here. We're going to jump into it. But I want you to understand what he's trying to get us to do is to accept our situation, accept what has happened to us with the idea that we're not falling apart. This is the idea that we have to recognize in God's sovereignty that he has different plans for each of us. Even in our room, there are different people at different stratas of income, different stratas of education background, et cetera, et cetera. And it is not an accident. How your life has played out is not an accident. But if you get bitter and say, I am not like him, 
or I'm not like her, you will miss out on life. You must understand, there are, this is very much an aspect of trusting God. You know, when you talk about trusting God, we talk about trusting in doctrine, like the plan of salvation. Faith alone and Christ alone, he's God and man who died, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I believe that for salvation. And, I, and, and I, he gives me passages like, husbands, love your wives, or do not lie, and I trust in that. But there's also doctrine that I trust in. And I trust passages that teach me that God is good. Do you know passages like the Psalms that talk about that God is good? I think it's even like Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel. God is good. God is good. And so I point that out is when you face a trial, I can't say, hey, someone in your family has just died. Go to this verse because God is good in the sense of this is how you're supposed to deal with that specific death in your family. But you can go to a passage that says God is good and say, okay, I recognize there are passages like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God, and I'm going to trust that. That's what I'm talking about, accept your situation. So let's, let's go into this. Verse 9 starts with a contrast, but the brother. So the but is a contrast to the unfaithful person who was the double-minded person who I hope you went and looked at some of those verses last week and saw whether it was in, in Psalm 12.2 and, and the other passages were warned, like Psalm 119, that t- warned about the double-minded person, clearly an unbeliever. But the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. And what you have here is he gives one long sentence in verses 9 and 10. And he uses a form of writing where you literally state one verb but it is implied in the second. So I'm not gonna, those of you who really like grammar, you can understand that. Basically, it's how we end up with two, two commands here. And so what you have here is to glory. And the idea is that you are to rejoice in your position, in the situation that you have in. First, with the lowly person, you see in verse nine, he is a brother of humble circumstances. By the fact that he's a brother, he's recognized in the family of God. He's a believer. And you would say he is in a humble position. He's in a low position. But he's to what glory? He's to rejoice in his high position. And it sounds like it's a contradiction right from the start. But I'm going to come back to that in a second. But you see then the second person who's in a good position financially. And perhaps would even include maybe health-wise. And now you look at his implication, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. And it says, wait a second, what is that dealing with? Well, I believe is the fact that even rich people die. Even rich people go through tragedies and even rich people go through hardships. That's the idea of them being made low. And so then he comes up in verse 11 and talks about the flower for the sun rises um, oh, excuse me, verse 10 ended like, but like the flowering grass, he will pass away. And in Israel, they have this grass that produces flowers. And we all know that, that when you have flowers, whether it's in the springtime or the summertime, you can't keep them. We just had this situation. We had to get our awnings up at our house. And we had these new black awnings. And, and Becky's got this beautiful flowering tree out front. And Becky was so frustrated because the awnings hadn't come in and she wanted it to contrast her beautiful pink flowering tree. Why? Because if the awnings didn't come in this week, then all of a sudden, you know, those flowers were going to be dead in a week or two because flowers don't always stay around. 
Anybody that is observant knows that. Listen, God uses this illustration here. He uses it in the gospel of of Matthew with Jesus. The idea is that you're supposed to learn from nature. I believe God's genius in even showing us how the seasons go is to show you the transitory part of life. And so here you have a rich man, and all of a sudden he looks at his life, and it is a brief moment and in the, in the t- span of time. And next thing you know, he is dying. And so verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Okay? I mean, I've heard of people that have played outrageous n- amounts of money for certain flowers. But it is, in my mind, idiotic. <laughs> Take a picture. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm not talking about like getting your wife roses for an anniversary or something like that. I'm talking about like hundreds of thousands of dollars I'm gonna, you know, for this special rose. And that's even cut off. You, who would do that? Because it's going to fade away. It's going to die. It's money wasted. I mean, the idea of verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of his appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. In my study this week, I I came across an account that really was fascinating to me because at one time, one of the richest men in the entire world was J. Paul Getty. And if you ever get to go to California and you go to the Getty Museum, you're overwhelmed. You're absolutely overwhelmed at this museum that's built on the Pacific Ocean and it's built out of his funds. And it's just amazing how incredible this museum is and the art that it's filled with. And... J. Paul Getty was one of the richest men ever. Do you know how he spent the last few months of his life? He had this giant mansion, and he spent primarily alone, calling up all over the world, calling doctors, calling scientists, who can keep me alive? I offer you up to half of my wealth. Because he wanted to hold on to life I don't want to be morbid, but everyone in this room will die. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you come to the end of your life, you don't come to a dead end. You come to a revolving door. And, and 1 John 3, verse 14 says, we know we've passed out of death into life. And that's a passage that goes on, talks about love. But there's the reality is that 1 John 3, 14 is so true. We who are believers in Jesus Christ, we're just going through a revolving door. You know, when I was a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was Superman, okay? And it was always great when Superman was walking around as Clark Kent, and all of a sudden an emergency came up, and he had to transition into his outfit, right? And and he would often go into a telephone booth, but if a telephone booth wasn't around, what did he go into? Everybody remember? He'd go into a revolving door, and he'd go in there, and he'd spin around so quick, and next thing you know, he'd change, and he'd come out the other side, as Superman. When I face death, I'm just going through a revolving door. I'm coming out glorified. Are you? Are you? This is what we all have. And, and, and so what, what James is trying to get us to do is to understand you better accept your situation. And, and, and recognize if you lost everything, you haven't lost it all because you're in a 
great position. And that's why, now we come back to verse 9, when he says the brother of humble circumstances is the glorify in his high position. Why is the person that is poor struggling in a high position? Well, I believe the answer is over in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a passage that deals with partiality. Believe it or not, even back when this was written in 45 AD, people acted partially, and the church had to correct it because there would be rich people in, and they would say, hey, there's a rich person, and we're going to give him the good seat. So verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in glorious in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, you say to this poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, that's a great point. This book is about faith. That shows your faith on how you trust people because you're not just trying to make an advantage with people. Here's, though, the key point. Look at the next verse. This one, I often use at our clothing outlets. Because we have people coming in our clothing outlets and they're struggling and they're looking for clothes because they don't have money. And so verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Huh? What are, what are you talking about? I know the doctrine of election. I know this. What, what are you talking about? Here is one of the most insightful passages, interesting passages, and it tells us this. I believe God has blessed people to be poor. If you're out there and you're struggling and you're struggling, listen, why are poor people blessed in some sense? It is because they, they recognize there's nothing in this world to hold on to. There's nothing in this world that they're going to hold on to. Why hold on to be, be like J. Paul Getty? Why be like the pharaohs? They're living and trying to live and get all they can and hold on to it because this is all they have. The pharaohs built their pyramids, and when they built their pyramids, they put all their wealth in it, hoping that they'd be resurrected and they'd be able to take their wealth off forever. But that's a hooey lie. You can't do that. God recognizes, I'm going to give a special blessing. Now, it's not like every poor person is, every poor person is getting to heaven. But the idea is that if you struggle financially, you are in a great position because you recognize more than anything, I am not going to count on my money. I'm not living, as the Proverbs talk about, for my treasure, for my security. That's why it's a high position. Listen, people who are poor recognize this world is not worth holding on to. J. Paul Getty didn't get that. He doesn't want to die. But look at verse 12 now. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. When you're blessed, you're in a good position. The man who perseveres under trial is a person that endures. I don't know why it was translated in the New American Standard Bible this, with this word perseveres other than just English, but it is the exact same word we saw in verses three and four, endurance, to bear under. The man who bears under trial once he has been approved, and that word approved is a synonym to the word of testing back in verse um, three. 
knowing that the testing of your faith. Now, it's, this is a sentiment in the sense that it's been tested and shown to be genuine. Remember, as I used the illustration, if you had a gold coin and you wanted to know if it was genuine and you put some like acid on it and if it stayed gold, it was gold. If it turned green, it wasn't true. And the idea is, is that you have been through the trial and you've persevered. Here's the warning, as I've been trying to get the warning out, is that people, I've seen it now, I've been a believer since 85, 86, and I've seen so many people walk along and say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, and then they go through a trial, and all of a sudden, you don't see them in church anymore. You don't see them reading their Bible. You don't see them serving. Please, we cannot go with, I just made a profession, and I'm still walking with God. No, you're not. The, the person that's blessed is the person that has persevered. Trials are a test. And, 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 and it's not my words. These are God's words. And we need to recognize that we have to persevere. Now, blessed is the man who perseveres on the trial for once he's been approved, meaning pass the test, he will receive the crown of life. When will he receive it? At the end, okay? And, and here's just by side implication is the very fact that when you go through, a tr- go through life, you're going through trials to the day you die. And I wish, again, that you didn't have to. But the reality of it is, is life is filled with trials. And the believer understands that. The believer has the right orientation. The believer understands this world. So once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. And what the question is, is what is that crown? It's the Stephanos crown. It's the victor crown. But even theologians, we don't know exactly what it is other than that it promotes life. And that's why I talked about life earlier. Believers have life, which the Lord has promised, okay? The Lord, he has promised to those who believe in him, who trust in him. No, it doesn't say that. So you're all paying attention. I found it fascinating. Why in the world does it say those who love him? I think it's just another way to emphasize really what our relationship is all about. You know, there's so many ways you could talk about faith, trust, all that. But I'm telling you, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you turn from sin, you turn from honoring self, and you turn to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ becomes everything, and you fall in love with him. And if that love isn't there, that's why I try to tell young people as well as old people, it's not this rote thing of you reading your Bible because good Christians read their Bibles. Good Christians read their Bibles because they're in love with someone. I came home the other day, and my wife hadn't been around anybody all day, and she wanted to talk to me. I was tired, and I was just wanting to go off and rest. But I could tell instantly that she wanted someone to talk to. And because I love my wife, I stayed and talked. (laughs) Not that it was an obligation, okay? (laughs) But the idea, you understand what I'm saying. If I don't talk to my wife, I don't love my wife. I don't care for her. If I don't spend time with you guys, I don't love you. I don't care for you. I hear of pastors, and it's sad that they don't spend any time with their congregation. I'll spend time with each and every one of you anytime, any moment, because I love you, I care for you. But mostly, look at that last line. He doesn't say, for those who believe. He could have said it, and it would have been fine. But he said, those who love. And love is an action. And listen, we are in a relationship, and, and, and I want you to understand this. We are in a relationship with God 
and this sort of like capstones this entire thing. Listen, you will be in a good position if you love God. I'm just going to leave you with two principles that are underlying everything. Will you, do you turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah? We'll just do this quickly. I, I think there are two theological principles that I've kind of alluded to, but I just wanted to give you verses to wrap these up. Isaiah chapter 40 is a long section. The book of Isaiah is talking about judgment that is going to come to the nation of Israel and then the restoration that's coming. And from chapter 40 to 46, there's some of the greatest theological points about the Messiah ever. You get Isaiah 53 in it. But in Isaiah chapter 40, I'm just going to tell you, you read on your own 12 to 26, but let's pick up in verse 21. And what I want to do, if I'm going to bring you two theological points to wrap up this study, is that the first one is I want you to understand, if I'm going to go to trials and I'm going to follow all of these instructions, I'm going to recognize God is sovereign. God is in control. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21, God is talking. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have their stock taken root in the earth and he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away to stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see the one who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. None of them is missing. My goodness, this is the God who just said, if you ask me for anything, I will give it to you. But I want you to understand, he's sovereign, he's in control. Anything that you're going through from now on, you recognize it's not an accident. He's allowed it. He's sovereign. But, turn to John 14. Not only do I want to leave you with the principle that God is sovereign, but God is personal. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we should never forget this. He's personally powerful. In John chapter 14, Jesus Christ is on the last night of his life. He's going to leave his disciples, and he wants to comfort them. And he tells them this in chapter 14. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper that he will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The reason I can go through a trial isn't because I can just grit it up and say, I'll push myself through. It is because I have an internal power engine that is going all the time to help me because I do want to quit. I do want to say my life is over. I do want to throw things down, and I do want to walk out. I do, I do, I do, I do. But God in me says, no, Mike. He says, no, let's do the right thing. This is why you have to know Jesus Christ. You go through life, you go through life alone. You go through life as an orphan. You go through life with no help if you don't know Jesus Christ. Know Jesus. That's why I want you to go through life with Jesus. It's too hard. It's too hard. Let's turn back to James. 
And remember, how you react to a trial is important. Focus on the last command. Will you, up there, accept your situation? But all of these are important. Every one of these are important to recognize God is at work, commit to faithfulness, pray for wisdom. Every one of them. I want to leave you with an application story that I really want to drive home. Incorporates all four of these instructions, no matter where you're, what you're going to face, and I don't know what you're going to face, but I want to emphasize what you're going to face is purposely designed for you. And this is why we call it a personal relationship with God. So let me give you an example based on raising children. I have two children. Each of them are different. They're different from one another, and in many cases, sometimes, I treat them different. I treat them different sometimes because they're, they're at different ages. Something that Joshua sometimes doesn't understand. His sister is older, <laughs> okay? We, she got to do things, she gets to do things at her age that he didn't get to do at his age because he wasn't that age yet. I'm sure at times they don't like that, they get treated different, but I've got my reasons. Age, experience, obedience, trust factors, all of these things I take into consideration as a parent. And I know my kids. Like, you who are parents know your kids. And that's why, as a parent, I don't always get excited when someone says, I wouldn't have done that with my kids. Well, I say, well, great. I can't say because I'm a pastor, but I can say it now. Well, great. Thankfully, this isn't your kid. And surely you don't know everything that my kid went through in the last 24 hours. As a father, I know my children. So here's a scenario that I will give, not specifically about my children, but as a father dealing with a six-year-old. And I believe this so greatly epitomizes our relationship with God the Father. Suppose a father is at a store with his child, and his child wants a candy bar. The candy bar is $1. He really wants that candy bar. And the child reaches into his pocket and he counts his money as 95 cents. He's a nickel short. The little boy starts to cry. He's frustrated. How are we going to deal with this as a parent? Number one, I hope he asks me for it. I hope he asks me for the nickel. I'm not going to offer it. Why am I not going to offer it to him? Because I want him to learn to ask. I want him to recognize, like God, who has unending resources, for whatever reason, God has said, Mike, I want you to ask, seek, and knock. God can give me everything, but he asks and tells me to ask. And so I know my son, this is something he has to learn. I have lots of nickels. I have lots of nickels. I have the resources. I want him to ask. Sometimes you're going to go through a situation. Look at verse 4, 5, and God is going to say to you, ask. Ask. Ask for wisdom. We're going to figure this. You know, God, can you provide? Second scenario. Even if he asks me for it, guess what? I'm going to say no. Why am I going to say no? Because one hour earlier, he has bought something with that nickel that was a waste of money. One hour earlier, I told him, hey, don't spend that nickel. Save your money. Save your money. But guess what? He didn't listen. And I want to teach him there are consequences for wasteful spending. If he really wants that candy bar, he's going to have to come back another day. He's going to maybe have to work for it. But in this situation, I've deemed, no. You think God the Father does that with you? 
Third scenario, even if he asks for it, I'm going to say no. Why? Because I want him to go to bed hungry. I have several lessons here. One, I know that perhaps maybe he needs to understand a worker's hunger, as Proverbs teaches, drives him on. Or maybe I want him to learn that there's a lot of children all over the world that go to bed hungry. And maybe if he learns that, it will help him be more compassionate. Fourth, if he asks, I'll give him the nickel. I'll buy it, but I'll take it. And I'll give it to him, to, I'll give it to him tomorrow. Why will I give it to him tomorrow? Because I know that he's eaten enough sweets today. I know that his mother's already treated him, and I'm not going to add to it. It's not the right timing. I don't want him to get sick. I don't want him to overindulge in too much sugar. He may not like that, but I'm, no, I'm his father, and I know his medical condition. Do you think there are things that God wants to give you, but it's not the right timing? Absolutely. Oh, I can go on. But we have a heavenly father who knows each of us individually. Isn't that wonderful? Every one of you, God knows you individually. He knows the hairs on your head. He cares for you. You believe he's sovereign. You believe he's personal. There's a reason some of you, though, go over and go through the same trials over and over and over because God sees that you're just not getting it down. Please start committing to faithfulness. For all of us, I pray that our faith is proven as we go through trials. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us so much instruction. We thank you that you're a personal God who knows us and loves us. Please, God, indelibly impress upon our people the need to be people who have your perspective in trials, that we accept, we accept what you have for us. The path that some of us are going to be struggling financially in life, some of us are going to be wealthy in life, some of us are going to be healthy in life, some of us are going to struggle with illness all the days of our life. It's no accident. The lot that we got is not accidents. The families we were born into, it's not been an accident. The friends that we have, it's not been an accident. That we, the place we were put in life. Help us, God, to just recognize that each day as we walk, as we get guided by your word, that it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And I'm praying, God, that everyone here proves themselves faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.